The epistle of Jude is a follow-up to Peter's second epistle. While the specific readers are not mentioned here, based on the similarities between 2 Peter and this epistle, we can deduce that the original readers were the saints scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Whereas Peter had warned them that false teachers were coming, Jude now writes, because the false teachers have, in verse 4, crept in unnoticed. And so Jude presents four charges against the false teachers. First, they were marked out for condemnation. Second, they were ungodly persons. Third, they were twisting the grace of our God into licentiousness. And fourth, they were denying our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why, in verse 3, Jude charges believers to contend earnestly for the faith. And so, believer, we need to be challenged to heed the charges. To heed the charges. First, we need to heed the charge to contend for the faith. Let's look at Jude, verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation... I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. Jude begins with a very familiar term, beloved, agapetos. The term beloved, agapetos, is used 29 times in the New Testament. 18 of those 29 usages are in the general epistles alone, especially in 1st and 2nd Peter and Jude. And that Jude refers to his readers as beloved implies that he writes out of sacrificial fatherly love. And while much is not known about Jude's relationship with his original readers, the scattered slandered saints of Asia, the use of this term beloved does provide us with some perspective. See, previously the term beloved was used by Peter in both of his epistles. Peter had been a shepherd or pastor to these believers. And it is very plausible then that Jude succeeded Peter as pastor of the saints scattered throughout Asia. In fact, the biblical evidence supports the appointment of elders by elders. Acts 14.23 When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Again, in the context of Acts 14.23, those who are doing the appointing are Paul and company, who are themselves elders. Titus 1.5, Paul tells Titus, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And so we can conclude, therefore, that based on his use of the term beloved, that Peter had appointed Jude as the pastor, as the shepherd of the sheep. Now, while there are many opinions about the pastor's role, the scripture is clear that the pastor's foremost responsibility is to feed the sheep. He's not the CEO of the church. He's not the sponsor of this group or that group. He is a preacher and teacher of God's word. During Peter's recommissioning to service, Jesus exhorted him 
in John 21, 15 to 17, to tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, and tend my sheep. And that verb shepherd, poimeno, is associated with the ministry of elders. In Acts 20, 28, Paul told the Ephesian elders, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, whom he purchased with his own blood. In 1 Peter 5, 1-2, Peter says, I exhort the elders, shepherd the flock of God among you. And so there is a responsibility of shepherding, which expresses the idea of leading and feeding. Now that verb tend, bosco, refers to feeding those under the care of the elders or shepherds. Christ told Peter that as a shepherd, he was to feed both the lambs and the sheep. That is, the younger and older Christians. Specifically, feeding occurs through the preaching and teaching of God's word, the scriptures. Paul exhorted Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, the teaching elder, typically a pastor, is to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And so Jude pastorally addresses his sheep to exhort them while at the same time reproving and rebuking the false teachers. Writing out of pastoral love, Jude was making every effort to write you about our common salvation. The term effort, spude, is the noun form of spadazo, translated as be diligent, a familiar exhortation in Peter's epistles. Jude adds the term every, pas, meaning all. And it conveys the idea that Jude undertook writing this epistle with all the excitement, eagerness, and earnest he could muster. See, Peter had previously written about the doctrines of the Bible, God, end times, and Christ. And so as a follow-up to 2 Peter, Jude determined to write about the doctrine of salvation. And he refers to this salvation as common, koinos. Common or koinos relates to the verb koinonia, which means to share in something or to fellowship. Acts 2.42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, koinonia, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. In Titus 1.4, Paul referred to Titus as his true child in a common koinos faith. And as such, Jude uses the term common, koinos, to describe salvation not as something ordinary, but instead as something in which all believers share. However, noting that false teachers had crept into the church, Jude felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. The verb felt, echo, conveys a sense of duty or obligation. Necessity, anake, refers to a compelling force. 
In essence, Jude says that he experienced a compelling obligation to charge his readers to contend for the faith. He began to write about salvation, but then was compelled to charge his readers to contend for the faith. No doubt, the one who compelled Jude was the Holy Spirit. As Kenneth Weiss stated, Jude had originally intended writing a letter containing a positive presentation of the doctrines of the Christian faith. The Holy Spirit laid upon his heart, however, the necessity of writing in defense of the faith. Now, twice in this verse, Jude has used the verb write, grapho. The first use was in the present tense, speaking of what he was currently writing. He was currently writing about the common salvation. The second use of write is in the aorist tense, underscoring a compelling obligation to write. In other words, what the Holy Spirit compelled Jude to write could not be done leisurely, but rather immediately. And this immediateness accentuates the need to contend earnestly for the faith. The verb contend earnestly, apagonesomai, is a hapax legomena, meaning it occurs only here in the Greek New Testament. Now this verb, epagonosomai, originates from agonizomai, from which the English term agonize derives. It's used to denote an athletic competition or military conflict. 1 Corinthians 9.25 Everyone who competes, agonizomai, in the games, exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. 1 Timothy 6.12 Fight, agonizomai, the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. See, the verb conveys the idea of fighting for something, even to the point of death. As Paul stated in 2 Timothy 4.7, I have fought, agonizomai, the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. The verb kept there translates the Greek verb tereo. In the perfect tense, it indicates that Paul guarded the faith. Thus he fought, even to the point of death, to guard the faith. That's what Jude is charging you and I as believers to do. To fight, even to the point of death, in order to guard the faith. And the use of this phrase, content earnestly for the faith, is most likely being quoted from the Jewish writing Sirach. Sirach 4.28 says, Fight to the death for truth, and the Lord God will fight for you. And we have to ask ourselves, are we ready and willing to fight even to the point of death for the faith? Now, by joining the preposition epa to the verb agonizomai, forming the verb Epigonosomai, it heightens this idea of fighting or struggling or exhibiting intense effort. And so such a fight now includes denying ourselves in order to overcome obstacles, to avoid perils, and if need be, to accept 
martyrdom. And so Jude's desire is for you and I, believer, to fight for the faith with an intense effort regardless of the cost. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, what is the faith, tapiste, for which we are to contend? Well, the definite article, the, te, is in the attributive position which gives definiteness to the noun, faith. So instead of referring to saving faith, Jude refers to the faith, also known as the body of biblical doctrine called orthodoxy. And the do those doctrines deemed orthodox or essential include the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, God as the creator of all things, the triunity of the Godhead, the virgin birth of Christ, the deity of Christ, the substitutionary death of Christ for sin, the blood atonement of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, and the visible return of Christ. And it was this body of biblical doctrine that was once for all handed down to the saints. Now the verb handed down, paradidomai, refers to the transmission of traditions or teachings. See, it was the teaching of the apostles which was transmitted or handed down to the saints, Acts 2.42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. 1 Corinthians 11.2 and 23. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions, just as I delivered them to you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. 1 Corinthians 15.3 For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. 2 Thessalonians 2.15 So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter, epistle, from us. And 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. Jude refers to this teaching or tradition of the apostles in verse 17. Remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when Jude says that they were handed down to the saints once for all, he specifies that this body of biblical doctrine was settled. That it is settled means that no new revelation can change the essence of biblical orthodoxy and no deviation from biblical orthodoxy can be tolerated. Believer, we cannot tolerate any deviation from biblical orthodoxy. And there is nothing coming down the track. There's nothing out there. There is no new revelation which is going to deviate from 
biblical orthodoxy. And so if some revelation comes along and it doesn't conform to biblical orthodoxy, it is to be what? Rejected. Now let me clarify. Within biblical Christianity, there are various and diverse opinions on theology. And these opinions, though different, should not be viewed as unorthodox or heretical. A doctrine or teaching is only unorthodox or heretical if it does not conform to orthodoxy. Sadly, throughout Christianity's history, believers have divided over minor issues of theology and differences of personality. And such division is sin. Orthodoxy is the issue. And orthodoxy has no common ground with anything which denies it. You cannot uphold orthodoxy and at the same time pursue spiritual endeavors with those who are unorthodox. Contending for biblical orthodoxy means that we must remove ourselves from compromising unholy spiritual relationships. All we have to do is go back to uh, 1 Kings chapter 18 and remember the lesson of King Jehoshaphat. That when you compromise with those who deny God, it is going to bring you under God's wrath. And so, believer, you and I need to heed the charge to contend earnestly for the faith. It's been handed down once for all. There's no question as to what orthodoxy is. Biblical orthodoxy is settled. Now in verse 4, Jude writes, and that is we need to heed the charges against false teachers. We need to heed the charges against false teachers. Verse 4, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. You see, the reason, believer, that you and I must fight for biblical orthodoxy is that certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Regarding these certain persons, Judah offers four charges against them of which we must beware. That is, they were long beforehand marked out for condemnation. They are ungodly persons. They turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. And they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice here that Jude used the term certain persons, tithe anthropoi, to contrast with the term beloved agapetos in verse 3. In doing so, Jude marks these individuals as being different from the beloved. And he uses the Greek term anthropoi, meaning human beings, to designate that these certain persons were both men and women. As well, he states that they've crept in unnoticed. The verb crept in unnoticed, peristeo, means to enter someplace secretly like a thief. Listen, folks, no genuine believer has any reason to sneak into the fellowship of saints like a thief. 
In Galatians 2.4, Paul refers to such person as false brethren secretly brought in. False brethren. They claim to be brethren. They claim to be believers, but they are false. That is, they are not genuine. Now, we must raise the question, how did they creep in unnoticed? Most likely, they presented themselves as itinerant Christian preachers and teachers. During the first century, it was common for Christian preachers and teachers to travel from town to town and church to church. Acts 11.27 Now at this time, some prophets, preachers, came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Acts 21.10 And we were staying there for some days. A prophet or preacher named Agabus came down from Judea. And with the increase of these false teachers, like wolves posing as sheep, the apostles and elders issued a warning as demonstrated in 2 John 2.11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, that is, they don't come with biblical orthodoxy, do not receive him into your house, i.e. your church, and do not give him a greeting for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. By the close of the first century, this was the standard practices amongst all the churches as demonstrated by the Didache. The Didache states, quote, Whosoever therefore cometh and teacheth you all these things that have been said before, receive him. But if the teacher himself turn and teach another doctrine to the destruction of this, hear him not. Hear him not. See, and, and let me say this. That such a response provides an essential lesson for elders or church leaders today. You see, too often, when there is a problem or situation in the church, leaders are quick to simply disband, dissolve, or discontinue that particular ministry group or issue. But instead of disbanding, dissolving, or discontinuing the itinerant preaching and teaching ministry, the elders explain how to identify those who were false and what to do in the case that they enter the church. If they don't teach biblical orthodoxy, if they teach error, don't let them in. End of story. They didn't say, well, let's get rid of the itinerant preaching ministry. And church leaders or elders in the 21st century church should follow the same example. Address the issue. But don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Now the first charge against these certain persons or false teachers is that they were long beforehand marked out for condemnation. So charge one, false teachers have been condemned. Now condemnation, crima, or judgment, refers to the rendering of a legal decision of guilt. And included with that decision is the punishment for the crime. Peter previously warned about false teachers, stating in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, that their judgment, crima, from long ago, and their destruction is not asleep. Now that phrase, from long ago, ekpalai, 
in 1 Peter 2.3 indicates that God's judgment against false teachers has been at work. The verb that Jude uses here were marked or were beforehand marked out, prographo, means to publish the charges against and punishment for a criminal in writing ahead of time. That is, the condemnation or judgment against false teachers has not only been at work, but it has been previously published in writing. See, God's declaration of judgment upon false teachers is recorded in Deuteronomy 13, 1-10. More specifically, the curse of death is placed upon false teachers in Deuteronomy 13, 5. That prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. End of story. And while physical death was the judgment under the theocratic kingdom, it pointed to a future judgment that results in the second death, that is eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. So false teachers, their judgment's been in the works, and it's in writing. They are going to be judged and damned to the lake of fire. Now, that Jude uses a similar phrase to Peter indicates, again, that these certain persons he referred to were the false teachers about whom Peter warned. Peter warned they were coming. Now, Jude states, not only have they arrived, but they've infiltrated the church. The second charge against these false teachers is that they're ungodly persons. Charge two, false teachers have been declared ungodly. Now, Peter used this term ungodly, asabase, in 2 Peter 2, 5, and 6, to describe the world before the flood, the world of the ungodly, and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. In 2 Peter 3, 7, Peter referred to the false teachers as ungodly. And he compared false teachers to Sodom and Gomorrah because of their immorality. Listen to the words of Jeremiah 23, 14. Also among the prophets of Jerusalem, I've seen a horrible thing. The committing of adultery and walking in falsehood. They strengthen the hands of evildoers, so that no one has turned back from his wickedness. All of them have become to me like Sodom, and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. Now ungodly, asebes, does not mean irreligious but instead refers to those who practice the opposite of what God demands. It's not a disbelief in God, but instead a moral rebellion against Him. And moral rebellion is the hallmark of those who cast off God's law, such as the antinomian Gnostics. Now in 2 Peter 2, Peter clarified the connection between wrong morality and wrong theology. 2 Peter 2, 2, 14 and 15, and 18 and 19. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, a curse of children, forsaking the right way they've gone astray 
having followed the way of Baal and the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they enticed by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. See, if you're involved with wrong morality, i.e. immorality, you will ultimately engage in wrong theology. And if you begin with wrong theology, you will ultimately engage in wrong morality. And so, believer, you and I must be on guard against both. Don't dabble with immorality or with heresy. Now, the third charge against false teachers is that they turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. So, charge three, false teachers have perverted the doctrine of grace. Charge number one, false teachers have been condemned. Charge two, false teachers have been declared ungodly. And now, charge three, false teachers have perverted the doctrine of grace. Now, the term licentiousness, alzagia, refers to a lack of restraint and indulging in all kinds of evil, sexual, and moral impurity. Another term for licentiousness is sensuality or depravity. In other words, such a person has no shame or restraint. Licentiousness or moral impurity is another hallmark of antinomian Gnostics. And it is such moral impurity that attracts many to these false teachers. Peter warned about the licentiousness or sensuality of the false teachers in 2 Peter 2.2. Many, he says, will follow their sensuality, asalgia, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. See, when believers are taken in by the allure of these false teachers, immorality, it maligns or hurts the reputation of the gospel, i.e. the way of truth. And when unbelievers see us embracing immorality, they are going to associate the way of truth with the way of error. And in time they will conclude that a gospel that embraces immorality cannot be from God. Now how does this licentiousness or the sensuality of these false teachers pervert the doctrine of grace? Well, Peter stated in 2 Peter 2, 1 and 2, that false teachers secretly introduce destructive heresy, i.e., not orthodox, wrong theology, heresies, which will cause many to follow their sensuality, their licentiousness. Paul sheds light on this particular heresy in Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? In other words, the false teachers twisted or distorted the doctrine of grace, which again, Paul, or excuse me, Peter warned us, that's what false teachers do. They twist the scriptures. They twisted or distorted the doctrine of grace to encourage people to engage in licentiousness or sensuality. Now, the grace of God occurs 27 times in the New Testament. And it denotes God's favor to the undeserved sinner by which he forgives their sin and releases them from judgment. 
Following Paul's statement in Romans 6, these false teachers were teaching that one could receive more grace from God by engaging in more sin. And the problem here is that such a teaching ignores that one received the grace of God in connection with their repentance and faith to God. Now, repentance is a turning away from sin and trusting in God. Those who do not repent or turn away from their sin have no part in Christ's kingdom. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 to Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. Okay? Paul says, some of whom he had writing were formerly these things. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. That was their past. But when they repented, what happened? They were washed, sanctified, and justified. Galatians 5, 19-21. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, dispute, dissension, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Furthermore, Christ himself said in Luke 13, 3, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And perish refers to damnation in the lake of fire. You see, believer, false teachers peddle nothing more than cheap grace. A grace without repentance. As Paul states in Romans 6, 2, May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And faith. Faith is not simply believing in something. Faith is committing to something. And in the case of the gospel, the object of faith is the salvific work of Christ, i.e. his death, his shed blood, his burial, his resurrection from the dead. You see, believing in Christ's work is ultimately committing ourselves to that work. And it demonstrates itself in obedience and submission to Christ's lordship. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. True faith works. It produces something, and that something is righteousness. And so, charge one, false teachers have been condemned. Charge two, false teachers have been declared ungodly. Charge three, false teachers have perverted the doctrine of grace. And now the final charge against the false teachers is that they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So charge four, false teachers have denied the Lordship of Christ. See, this fourth charge demonstrates that the false teachers did not submit to Christ's Lordship. The verb deny, or neomai, 
means to refuse to or recognize or acknowledge. That is, Jude charges these false teachers with a refusal to recognize Jesus as their master and Lord. Peter made a similar charge against them in 2 Peter 2.1, denying the master who bought them. Now the phrase master and Lord, ton despontain kai curion, follows the Granville Sharp rule. See, both master and Lord share one definite article in the Greek text, denoting both as applying to Jesus Christ. The title master, despotes, is only used ten times in the New Testament, predominantly in Luke, Acts, and Revelation. And it denotes one who has complete ownership and supreme authority over another person. Acts 4.24 When they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, despotes, O Master, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. 2 Timothy 2.21 Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he'll be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the Master, despotes, prepared for every good work. Jude 4 Certain persons have crept in unnoticed that what? Deny our only master, despotes. Now the title Lord, Curios, denotes one who has ownership and authority. In the New Testament, the term Lord, Curios, is the Greek equivalent for the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh. Robert Mount stated that to call Jesus Lord is to declare that he is God. And thus, by referring to Jesus as Lord or Yahweh, is to underscore the truth that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh and therefore establishes his deity. He is God. And since Jesus is God, he is the sovereign one and has the right to reign over everyone. Interestingly, God only identifies himself as Yahweh to those in a personal relationship with him. And Jude specifically states that Jesus is our only master and Lord. And by using the possessive personal pronoun our, ego, Jude evidences that believers, you and I, we have a personal relationship with Jesus and can call Jesus as God and Father, our Father and God. John 20, 17, Jesus said to her, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. See, there's two denials of orthodoxy in this statement. To deny him as master is to deny his authority. To deny him as Lord is to deny his deity. No doubt this reference to denial alludes to Jesus' own statement in Matthew 10, But whoever denies me before men I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. My friends, denial of Christ results in future judgment at the great white throne and eternal damnation in the lake of fire. Additionally, Jude states that Jesus is our only Lord and Savior. The term only, manas, refers to the exclusivity of something or someone. By stating that Jesus Christ is our only Master and Lord, Jude was making a deliberate affront against the religion of the day, the Pontifex Maximus, or the divine worship of Caesar. See, Caesar demanded that he be worshipped as divine and referred to as Lord. 
And Jude wanted believers to know that they have only one divine master and Lord, and that is Jesus Christ. And believer, it would behoove you to consider whether Jesus Christ is your only master and Lord. You see, believer, if you're more concerned about how your family or your friends or your co-workers or your political party views a specific issue instead of Jesus Christ, then, my friend, you have more than one master and Lord. In that case, Jesus is not your only master and Lord. Believer, make sure the only opinion that matters at the end of the day is his. Because he is your only master and Lord. Four charges. They've been condemned, declared ungodly, perverted the doctrine of grace, and deny the lordship of Christ. Believers, beware. We must heed the charge against false teachers. See, the false teachers are infiltrating the church. And they're distorting the truth in order to lead away some of the flock. Acts 20 verse 30. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. See, false teachers are savage wolves, a metaphor used in Matthew 7, 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You see, just as wolves are deadly to sheep, false teachers are deadly to the church. They're more dangerous to you and I than those outside the church because they appear to be part of the church. They're going to look and act just like sheep, but you can know them by their words. Their words are perverse, Paul says. That word perverse back in Acts 20 verse 30 refers to that which is twisted or distorted. And again, the primary task of a false teacher is to twist or distort God's word. Acts 13.10, you are full of deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. Will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? 2 Peter 3.16, in all his letters, Paul, about, this is about Paul speaking in them of these things in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable, the false teachers, distort as they do also the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. By the way, is it not interesting that while the chief primary task of false teachers is to distort God's word the primary task of the teaching elder of the pastor of the preacher is to teach God's word it is necessary my friends for you and I not only to heed the charges against false teachers but we need to heed the charge to contend earnestly for the faith to fight even to the point of death, for biblical orthodoxy. Contending means we need to commit ourselves to diligently studying the scriptures and to determinately stand against the changing cultural mores of society when they oppose biblical orthodoxy. Will you commit yourself to that? Will you commit yourself to studying the scriptures? Will you commit yourself to standing against the changing cultural mores of society when it opposes biblical orthodoxy? And my friends, pastors do not own the corner market on studying and standing for the truth. Jude says that God entrusted all of us with the task of contending earnestly 
for biblical orthodoxy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank and praise you for this opportunity to spend time in your word. And Lord, to be given these charges. Those charges given some 2,000 years ago are still applicable today. That Lord, I pray that we might heed these charges. That we would commit ourselves to earnestly contending for the faith. That Father, we would commit ourselves to studying your word. And that we would commit ourselves to, to determinately stand when the world goes against biblical orthodoxy, we'll continue to determinately stand for truth, for what is biblical. Father, I pray as well that we would heed these charges about these false teachers. And that, Father, the best way to spot a false teacher is to listen to what they say. We're not going to be able to spot them by how they look, but rather by what they say. Because, Father, they're going to twist the Scriptures. Lord, I would ask that we would be committed to praying for those who minister the Word of God. That, Father, they would faithfully teach your Word. Because the false teachers are out there twisting your words. And so, Father, protect us from those things. And, Lord, I pray that you would raise us up in an evil day to stand when so many, Father, have walked away. I thank you, Lord, for this word, this word of truth. And Father, I pray that by this word of truth, you will set us free from the heresy of false teaching. We pray in your son's matchless and precious name. Amen.